Have you ever wondered why we peel eyes off potatoes before we eat them? Why pill bottles have cotton in them? Or how the creation of the EPA is somehow tied to the 1969 moon landing? Hi, I'm Harini Bott. And I'm Megan Gesner, co-hosts of The Deadly Dose. A podcast where we explore stories in science and toxicology, including medical mysteries, political assassinations, healing rituals, environmental disasters, big pharma cover-ups, and more. Nothing is off the lab table here. Remember, folks, the dose makes the poison. That's right. So come pick your poison with us on the Deadly Dose podcast. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. you're sick of hearing my voice, don't worry, because today is the day we get to hear Megan's voice. What, what? I am so excited to hear <laughs> Megan's story. I miss her stories. I know it's going to be good. Oh, thank you. Well, I hope it's good. I hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, I'm excited to share. It has been a minute from for me to bring one to the table. This story I'm going to talk about today was actually inspired by last week's episode drop on itai itai disease uh if we mentioned this particular topic at the very very end of that episode and now i'm gonna finally follow up on that so it fe- it'll feel consecutive Ooh. if you're listening to these episodes back to back you're like okay i'm not left hanging but yeah today i'm going to talk about the yokaichi asthma that we mentioned mm. in last episode in last episode i pronounced it yokai Yokaichi, because mm-hmm. I am really bad with Japanese pronunciation, but I did the how do you pronounce video? Yeah. It's pronounced Yokaichi. I like that. So I'm going to talk about that today. Awesome. And as mentioned in last episodes, this is the final, final environmental pollution story that is part of the big four, the four, sorry, the four big pollution diseases of Japan. Mm hmm. So we've done Minamata. Yep. We've done Itaitai. Mm-hmm. And then there's Yokaichi asthma. Okay. Minamata counts for two of those diseases because they say. happen in two different areas. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, that's three. That's where's the fourth one? <laughs> Minamata counts for two. All right. Anyways. So I will start with a little bit of background on Yokaichi City and its geography. Mm. So all the way, all the way back, back, back in time. <laughs> Just trying to add a little zazz. I don't know if this will be boring. Hold on. Back, back in time. All right. So Zatterate. there is evidence. Yeah. <laughs> there is evidence that the area that is now known as Yokaichi City has been settled since prehistoric times. Whoa. But it wasn't until the 11th century AD that it became developed. Hmm. By the 15th century, it officially became a port market that opened specifically on the 4th, 14th, and 24th days of the month. Hmm. This is where the name Yokaichi comes from. Yoka meaning fourth day and Ichiba meaning market. So there's a little language lesson for you. I like that. Yeah. In the late 1800s, Yokaichi became an industrial city and international port. So that was during the Meiji period. Mm. That's when there was a lot of development in the 
in Japan in general, Mm -hmm. and they became very industrial for the late 1900s. In 1939, fast forward, the Imperial Japanese Navy turned Yokaichi Harbor into a major oil refinery complex. The harbor's location... Tucked into Ise Bay, facing out towards the Pacific Ocean, made it an ideal naval fueling station during Mm. World War II. These factories and surrounding urban areas were eventually bombed as part of multiple air raid campaigns staged by the United States military. Mm. Yokaichi was actually one of the first Japanese cities to be bombed by the U.S. in 1942, and then again eight (gasps) more times in 1945. Eight more times? Yeah, I did want to give this history because it is like it was a significant naval fueling area and experienced a lot of the heat that came from the U.S. Um, And one of those final bombings in 1945 was actually part of a test run for the eventual atomic bombs that were dropped in Japan. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. The bombings in 1945 destroyed about 35 percent of the city of Yokaichi killing over 1,500 people mm. and leaving over 47,000 people homeless. Oh so it has God. a very turmoiled and tragic history. Yeah. A decade after the end of the war, the Ministry of Inter- International Trade and Industry began its industrial policy of Japan, where it transitioned Japan's primary fossil fuel source from coal to petroleum. Mm. As a reminder to those who did listen to our Minamata Part 1 and Part 2, The Ministry of International Trade and Industry used to be the Japanese government's most powerful units Mm -hmm. post-World War II. Okay. And it played a very active role in funding one of the studies that would attempt to redirect blame away from the Chiso Corporation, which was responsible for the methylmercury poisonings in Minamata Bay. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to give that context that the Ministry of International Trade and industry, also known as MITI, or M-I-T-I, had kind of um, biased interests in who they wanted to protect during this time mm. because they really wanted to push Japan industrializing. Makes sense, yeah. That just, just wanted to put that mm-hmm. in the grander context of what's to come. That's good brand marketing, right. though. Like, how can you get mad <laughs> at a company called MITI? <laughs> Me too. So well, it's not. It's not a. It's not the company. Oh, it is not. a faction of the government, oh, but like it's just easier to call it M I T I. Oh, yeah. so Me that's tea. like the acronym. Acronym. Got yes, it, yes, yes. I know. Me too. Does sound very cute though, but it's not. It's not cute. <laughs> they made a lot of terrible mistakes. They did. Anyway, they did. Okay. <laughs> As a result of the industrial policy of Japan. Specifically, the petrochem industry program stage one. That's a part of this policy that Miti put together, MIT. Anyway, uh, the the Daiichi Petrochemical Complex was then built in Yokaichi and began to operate around the remnants of the original Navy refinery Mm. facilities Mm -hmm. in 1959. Okay. So the war happens. These facilities are devastated, but they decide to build refineries around it with whatever is left of them. Yeah. Okay. The Daiichi Petrochemical Complex was a massive industrial factory. It had an oil refinery, a petrochemical plant, an ethylene plant, and a power station. So you know how in the Bay Area, when there's those like industrial parks yeah. or industrial factories that you pass, and sometimes you can even see like the smoke mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or steam billowing out from the towers. That's what this looks like. Okay. And if yeah. you were to research Daiichi Petrochemical Complex or Yokaichi 1960s, 
that's exactly what it looks like. Okay. And when I was looking at these photos, it also gave me the same vibe that driving through Long Beach gives me. Mm. And lo and behold, guess which port is Yokaichi Port's sister port? Long, Long Beach. Beach. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. That's they do look wild. alike. <laughs> yeah. Is there only Sydney's, just one place? Okay. It it has three. Okay. Long Beach, Sydney, and Tianjin, China. Okay. But it's pretty common for cities to have sister cities, whether you're a port or not. Like, I'm pretty sure San Francisco's sister city, one of them is Sydney, Australia okay. as well. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. That so it's just a, a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so this is a massive industrial factory has been built in this part of the Ise Bay. Mm -hmm. While a second complex was built in 1963, the civilian and environmental cost of the first plant was felt pretty immediately in 1959. Mm. So I, when I was reading about this, I imagined they like boop, 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 built up (laughs) all these like power plants and all these smokestacks and stuff and like... Immediately, people are coughing. They're like, uh, I'm sick. I'm sick. I shouldn't laugh because people did get sick. They did. They did. Yeah. Now, Japan has very few natural resources that they produce themselves mm. and is heavily dependent on crude oil imports with between like 80 to 90 percent of its crude oil imports coming from the Middle East region. Interesting. This was the case back then mm-hmm. and is still the case today. Mm. So they heavily rely on Middle East imports. Yeah. Back then, the crude oil that they imported from the Middle East had a very high sulfur content, more than 3%, according to the Environmental Justice Atlas. Hmm. Now, I don't know what the rest of the percentage (laughs) is, what like 3% into whatever else makes up the rest of that crude oil. Olive oil. But they made it sound like... (laughs) (laughs) They made it sound like 3% is very severe. Yeah. Um, that's a very severe amount of sulfur, Mm. any sort of sulfur components or sulfur compounds within oil. Got it. I don't know if that is still the case today Mm. or if globally we've just become better at refining our crude oil and making sure that whatever sulfur oxide output comes from refining it is, is mitigated. Yeah. So the issue with back then is that the Daiichi petrochemical complex which relied exclusively on this crude oil as an energy source for manufacturing other chemicals and exports, simply did not have the suitable measures for desulfurization, mm-hmm. causing the air to become polluted oh, with God. sulfur oxide emissions, most notably sulfur dioxide mm-hmm. and sulfur trioxide in the form of sulfuric acid Yee! mist. Mist. So nothing is scarier than mist. mist. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, there's something about like the the thought that it's like wet, you know, and it's wet but small yeah it's <laughs> permeating <laughs> exactly yeah. and i did not mention this earlier but the reason why sulfuric acid mist was becoming it was part of the output of these industrial factories is because the region that yokaichi is in does tend to be humid during the warmer summer days and then it does experience uh, lighter snow lighter snow during winter but it is it is kind of like the towards the southern tip of japan it's not totally south but it's starting it's like past the halfway point south of japan yeah Yeah. so i think the humidity definitely played a role in how the sulfur trioxide and sulfur dioxide was pushed out into the environment or being absorbed by people that's so interesting because it's like 
I think weather does play a huge role because if it, for example, if it wasn't humid and there was wind, mm-hmm. windy, I don't mm-hmm. think this would have been as much of a problem. This is all speculation. Mm-hmm. But if it's hum- yeah. humid, it just hangs in the air. It doesn't right. go anywhere. And then you're just breathing that in all day. <laughs> the water is taking it in. Exactly. Yeah. Now, wind does play a big role in this, oh, and I will get to that okay. later. The wind does play a role in All this. right. I see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you are correct. Oh, okay. You are correct. <laughs> yeah. So during this time, immediately after 1959, once this factory is starting to refine its oil and start doing the processes that it was built to do, mm-hmm. the sky was described as sooty and filled with white smog with an, quote, offensive odor in the air now remember this is sulfur sulfur oxide or yes derivatives of sulfur oxide and sulfuric acid so it probably just smelled like hell yeah (laughs) because you know how hell they say it's like sulfur from the ground i'm like that's what i imagine dante's inferno probably smelled like just felt like a fat egg in the sky <laughs> oh my god! Horrible! They're I should laugh. An egg, <laughs> like they're living in a rotten egg. They are because you know the white, the white sooty yes. sky. That's the white of the egg. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Citizens, most notably men working at or close to these facilities, mm. and children and adolescents Ugh. developed respiratory diseases such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, also known as COPD. Mm-hmm bronchial asthma, chronic bronchitis, and pulmonary emphysema. These respiratory ailments were grouped under the umbrella name yokaichi asthma. Okay. So this is the term where yokaichi asthma comes from. It is not one thing, but it is a cluster of respiratory ailments caused from these factories. Got it. it. In addition, the quality of marine life was also Mm -hmm. greatly impacted. Fish caught in the Issei Bay were described to have developed a bad taste and greasy smell. Much like what happened to the Minamata fishing industry happened to the fishing industry in Issei Bay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in a very weird and kind of eerie, like some eerily similar play by play, the Issei Bay fishing unions obviously became rightfully upset at how the chemical plants were hurting their industry and livelihood. They couldn't even sell their fish anymore. Like it was inedible. People yeah. that they sold it to would return it to them and be like, we don't want this. So they Damn. became upset just as the fishermen in Minamata and they petitioned the government to compensate them for their losses. The government mm-hmm. issued a 100 million yen settlement to be divvied between the unions, but that didn't solve the pollutioning. Yeah. It just like exactly. put a band aid on their hurt feelings and disgruntledness. <laughs> Right, totally. Which just made them more upset. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's their livelihood. Like, that's money. I don't know. Like, that's not going to do anything. No. You know? It's just like, okay, like, thanks, but I still can't breathe and I still have exactly. asthma and my fish and tastes eat. bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I didn't even know you could return fish. Yeah. Like, that's where we're at. Yeah. Man. They're that's like, where we're at. <laughs> this cannot be sold in Tokyo. We're too no. good for that. <laughs> Someone just brings them back their fish stews like, I cannot eat this. Here you go. (laughs) It's already cooked. You see, there's a bite taken out of it. It's just bite marks. Between 1960 to 1969, multiple local committees created 
on behalf of the citizens of Yokaichi, focused on studying, surveying, and correcting the environmental pollution that they were witnessing. Like they could see it in the air, they could see it in their marine mm-hmm. systems. They're like, this since this factory has gone up, our mm-hmm. environment has gone to shit. Our children have asthma that they would that we never had in our lives before. We're literally yeah. telling them, and this is something that I did read, we're literally telling our children in schools to breathe as little as possible. They're wearing masks. What? All this. Yes. Because they were, children wow. were the most prone to developing yeah. some sort of respiratory disease. Mm. And so they put together, you know, these committees because at this point in time, the national government had not taken an interest really in it. Um, it was mm-hmm. the local governments that were giving settlements and things like that. So, but pe- but okay. citizens of Yokaichi <clears throat> were like, "Yo, bigger Japan, national government, like, please come and look at this issue." Just like, right. just like the Minamata situation is the same exact mm-hmm. thing. Through their studies, it was discovered that Isozu Village, which is a small part of Yokaichi, but it's very, very, very close to where all the factory and facilities are. It's mm-hmm. immediately downwind of a, a titanium oxide plant that had six times the sulfur trioxide content in the air than the rest of Yokaichi. This poor, Whoa. poor small village is immediately there's a there's a great schematic in a study from 1984 that shows exactly how the air <laughs> flow goes right over this poor village. Uh, and 2.5 percent of this village's population had respiratory disease. Jeez. Yeah. Because of this one titanium oxide plant just blowing its sulfuric Dude. acid mist towards them. That's terrifying. Yeah. Okay. And I already said, at this point in time, the national government was still pretty absent in assisting the people of Yokaichi. Because of this, an outraged group of Isozu fishermen, they took it upon themselves to go to one of the plants and plug up its um, plant outflow pipe whatever it is yeah yeah with like sandbags because they're like you guys aren't doing anything we're upset we're plugging this goddamn pipe ourselves i like it i love it yeah this is just some guerrilla guerrilla warfare there yeah what ended up happening is a fight between the factory workers and the fishermen broke out and this incident is what caused the larger national government to get involved mm, and investigate there you go again just like what happened in minamata and it blows my mind i'm like right. flashbacks, flashbacks flashbacks and i'm sure these were happening in parallel to each other because it was, was in the 60s say, yeah yeah i was gonna look up when these both specifically happened yes please do please do and then and then compare so uh, this whole yokaichi asthma development was very it was between 1960 some people would say like 1957 but 1960 to 1969 overall mm-hmm. it was a 20 year ordeal because the people who ended up getting respiratory illnesses from the pollution had to deal with it and overcome it you know 10 years after all the pollution was solved and the government intervened but right. we still we'll still get to that in 1967 nine individuals from Isozu who suffered from Yokaichi asthma filed a lawsuit against six companies that had ties to the Daiichi Petrochemical Complex. This was Mm -hmm. Japan's first court trial related to pollution. So this actually preceded, in terms of like a trial, it preceded anything that happened, any litigation that happened with Minamata. Mm. Mm -hmm. In 1968, and this is kind of weird because different sources say different dates. One one source said 1966, so that's like a whole tier difference, but I'll stick with 1968. Yeah. Yokaichi became an official target area of the soot and smoke regulation law. And here's something that's darkly, deeply ironic. 
as part of this law, taller smokestacks were introduced to the refinery facilities. Okay. They were introduced with the intention of discharging pollutants to higher levels of the troposphere. (laughs) Thus allowing it to be dispersed, all the sulfur, all the whatever chemicals are coming out of the smokestack to be dispersed away from Yokaichi. What do you or think it actually did? Across Japan. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just a larger blanket of downfall coming from these taller smokestacks. Oh my God. So More yeah, for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, everybody gets sick. Woo. Yeah. You get the smokestack and you get the smokestack. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. They introduced these smokestacks. Thinking it would be a solution, but not at all. It just simply spread the pollution across a wider area. When that clearly did not work and people were still disgruntled, (laughs) they, meaning the government or whoever, you know, was in charge of these facilities, ultimately introduced flue gas desulfurization on a larger scale to remove the sulfur dioxide from the air. So flue gas desulfurization is just a umbrella term for different methods to scrub sulfur dioxide out Mm. of whatever chambers the gases might be going in before they're emitted from the factory. They also introduced electrostatic mist separators, which were Mm. installed at the titanium oxide manufacturing plant a year earlier in 1967 to remove the acid mist. So these two things, which came after you know, lots of citizens complaining and fishermen getting angry and people fighting. These two things were finally added and the pollution was addressed. And they Mm -hmm. did, in fact, help remediate the sulfur dioxide and sulfur trioxide in the air and create higher breathability. Yeah. The one thing that is interesting about the introduction of the flue gas desulfurization processes and the mist separators is that, like I said, the mist separators were actually introduced a year before the flue gas me- flue, hmm. flue gas desulfurization methods. Okay. In my research, I'm not sure why they added the mist separators because during this whole 10-year period, researchers were, were extremely convinced that the cause of Yokaichi asthma was sulfur dioxide. The flue gas desulfurization methods only combat sulfur dioxide. It does not Mm -hmm. combat sulfur trioxide. Okay. Okay. In this 1984 study, obviously came out years later, they realized that the people in Isozu who were downwind of that titanium oxide plant, they Mm -hmm. were suffering from sulfur trioxide. And that was what was actually the primary source, like the sulfuric acid mist and the sulfur Mm -hmm. trioxide is the primary Mm -hmm. source of Yokaichi asthma and all these respiratory illnesses. Yes, sulfur dioxide was a part of that, but not Mm -hmm. on as big as a scale as the sulfur trioxide. So for some reason, it just worked out that during this time period, during the tail end of this ordeal, someone had it in their right mind to be like, we should put on these mist separators on these titanium oxide stacks because that'll reduce the sulfur trioxide, even though it's not sulfur, even though like it's not sulfur dioxide, but we might as well put that there to like prevent more. And then in 1968, They introduced the the flue gas desulfurization methods because they were very, very convinced that it was sulfur dioxide that was the problem. So that was their final cap on the issue. The reality is, while it it is ultimately a good thing they ended up putting those desulfurization methods in place, they probably could have seen a huge change just from letting the mist separators sit. 
And what the 1984 study says, this will give a little bit more clarity to the whole thing. What they what they Mm -hmm. saw is the titanium oxide manufacturing plant, which was started in 1954, had a monthly output of 550 tons. This monthly output was gradually increased to 1,000 to 2,000 tons in 1956, 3,000 tons in 1961, 4,000 tons in 1964, and 6,000 tons in 1968. Wow. Electrostatic mist separators were installed for the first time in June 1967 to remove the acid mists. According Mm -hmm. to investigations by Shiohama Hospital in Yokaichi, the number of newly found patients with allergic asthmatic bronchitis each year increased almost linearly from 40 Mm -hmm. in 1959 to 108 in 1968 and has since gradually decreased since the addition of those mist separators in 1967. So that is how they kind of deduced like, oh, it was actually sulfur trioxide that was the problem. So interesting. I just thought that was interesting. But at the end of the day, like put all the put all the resources into whatever sulfur oxides you can eliminate. Do that. (laughs) Exactly. I think ultimately at the end of the day, the safe level is zero. Yeah. (laughs) So just do whatever you need to do. Yeah. It doesn't matter. SO2, SO3, SO. Get them all out of here. GTFO. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. The pollution markedly decreased by the end of 1970s. No new cases have been reported since 1988. Circling, wow. yeah, circling back to the lawsuit from 1967, it mm-hmm. finally resolved in 1972, five years later, with a verdict mm-hmm. in favor of the residents of Isosa. So justice yes. was won. I don't know what they got out of that, to be honest, but I'm going to assume that like more safety regulations were put in place to make sure that yeah. the factories were were not negligent anymore. They got fish stew. Fresh fish stew. <laughs> I know. Fresh fish. From meat tea. Meat tea. <laughs> I want to talk briefly about the mechanism of how inhaled sulfuric oxide mm-hmm impacts the body and why it causes respiratory problems. Yeah. I'm just going to read directly from an article. Please. Inhaled sulfur dioxide easily dissolves in the epithelial lung lining fluid of the nose and upper airways and generates secondary reactive compounds such as sulfurous acid and sulfuric acid. These derivatives increase the level of prostaglandin D2, which I don't know what that is, but it's going to talk about it. Inducing yeah. the constriction of airway smooth muscle, inflammatory responses, oh. and oxidative stress. So That's interesting. To put that in layman's terms, mm-hmm. sulfuric dioxide creates reactive compounds when it hits your epithelial tissue in your respiratory system and mm-hmm. creates your smooth muscles in your airways to restrict and have an inflammatory response. I hope that yeah. makes sense. As a result, exposure to sulfuric oxide causes bronchoconstriction in asthmatic subjects and, and, and exacerbates asthma. Many epidemiological studies found that exposure to sulfuric oxide was associated with mortality. Oh, sorry. I kept saying sulfuric oxide. Sulfuric mm-hmm. dioxide was associated with mortality and incidence of asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases for adults and prevalence of persistent cough slash phlegm 
asthma-like attacks for school children. Hmm. And I hate that feeling of phlegm. To just have like constant phlegm. Yeah. That is not easy. Poor, That's poor terrible. school children. I know. Yeah. Lastly, this is this is talking about sulfuric acid mist and how that impacts mm-hmm. the body as a note for everybody this the reason why i was saying that's really interesting is because prostaglandins um i don't i mean i don't know enough about it to say that it's the exact same mechanism mm-hmm. but that's how ibuprofen works like that's Ooh. like i mean i don't know about you but i i pop those ibuprofen every time like it's that time of the month i'm having yeah. cramps because it basically constricts everything and like prevents the contractions like prostaglandins is what causes like those contractions where it's like constricting and and contracting like that so that makes a lot of sense um it's it's literally the same compound prostaglandins is what ibuprofen targets in your body interesting interesting so hypothetically could they have taken ibuprofen i wonder yeah it's very interesting that's what that's what I was going to say. Like, I don't know if it's like the same way that it works um, for like other parts of your body because the lungs, the lungs are different than like your smooth muscles. You right. know what I mean? Right. So I don't know if it targets it in the same way, but I would try it. Yeah. Um, if I was that desperate, I'd be like, give me all the ibuprofen. <laughs> yeah. Let me just try this. Yeah. So yeah. maybe that's just like a fun little side thing to look up of like, yeah, could, could, can you use ibuprofen for asthmatic uh, symptoms or something. Uh, yeah, there there is a connection there. I remember in pharmacy school, but I'd have to look it up. But yeah, yeah. I'll, maybe I'll do a side quest. <laughs> okay, side quest, side quest. <laughs> All right. Um, back to the sulfuric acid. Basically, this wonderful doctor. <laughs> she did an experiment on guinea pigs, and she mm-hmm. tested um, certain sizes of sulfuric acid droplets and how they impact mm-hmm. guinea pigs. And so a smaller size droplet caused simple bronchoconstriction. So your bronchioli and your lungs probably Mm -hmm. constricted a little bit. However, larger particles resulted in severe edema and atelectasis. atelectasis. I might be butchering that, but I looked up what that is. (laughs) Atelectasis is um, hemorrhaging of your lungs, collapsing of your, your lungs, partially or fully causing mucosal swelling, increased secretion, and possible exudation of fluid, which led eventually to complete obstruction of major air passages. Oh, my God. So that's what can happen with sulfuric acid mist. But they did really want to make it clear that just as is the theme of our podcast, it's the dose that makes the poison. So if you get a really small particle, you're going to have some respiratory discomfort. The larger the particle, of course, the larger and more severe the problem. Damn. So that was the conclusion with that. Damn, and that's the that's conclusion really of my story. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Yeah. That is honestly so terrifying because uh, that's just – that's in a very controlled environment that mm-hmm. even just like a tiny particle still has an effect. Yeah. But this is an uncontrolled controlled environment of where people live. Like you can't control – how much you breathe, you know? Right. And I'm sure it's cumulative. Like they're breathing this in 24 hours a day. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm actually surprised. Did anyone die from this? I think yes. I actually did not look up death toll. The mm-hmm. furthest I got in terms of mortality is that there was a study that was pretty much just doing research on, okay, for those who reported Yokaichi asthma or some form of yokaichi asthma 
how's their mortality impacted? Like what's their life expectancy? Did it get shorter? Did it stay the same? Right. And across the board, they, those who had the asthma, their life expectancy was shorter. Like mortality rates mm-hmm. were higher, which implies that deaths were probably happening. I yeah. imagine that a lot of the elderly who were infected, um, probably some of them passed. I think that the children mm-hmm. that had it, uh, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give false, false knowledge. I don't know if any children passed away, but I know that they had to deal with that for a long chunk of their life. Yeah. Uh, if they lived, yeah. then they were, they were left. It was not reversible. Like they, right. You're left with that asthma because if your bronchioli has collapsed. I don't think you right. can uncollapse your certain parts of your bronchiola. Um, right. There were some studies that said uh, this was during the height of it. Um, people who lived in Yokaichi but then went to the mountains away from the industrial area and got some clean air for for a couple days immediately felt better. But it didn't mean that their Jeez. that their asthma went away. It's just that they could like breathe a little more clearly again and not like have to not breathe anymore so i know yeah oh that's terrible because i was just thinking like the way that the bigger particle size Mm -hmm. for the guinea pigs it shut off their lungs essentially like everything just constricted and collapsed so i'm just like then you you don't breathe at a certain point you know like but i don't know how that works for a human sized body it's totally different composition so right maybe that's why but damn that is it's just it is shitty. It's very shitty. <laughs> what I was going to say is, because I was looking up, uh, did all this stuff happen at the same time? Mm. And a uh, short answer is yes. So yeah. Minamata disease was first discovered mm-hmm. in 1956. And it basically went through like the next 10 or so years, which is mm. essentially around the same timeline as yeah. uh, this. And I think yeah. Utah, Utah as well. Yeah. If there is a way to get this information, I would love to hear what it was like from the government's yeah. perspective, because yeah. what we know so far across all these stories about the big four pollution diseases of Japan is that they coincided mostly when Japan was going through like a huge industrial boom, when they decided yeah. to go towards chemical manufacturing after World War II. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm, I know that it's not so black and white. It's not like the government was yeah. evil and was like, we will break as many eggs as we have to to get this country <laughs> off the ground. I don't think that it was that malevolent. Mm-hmm. I can see a government official who's very passionate about, you know, re- rebuilding the economy being like, right. well, we, we need to, you know, we need to start importing these these resources and we need to start exporting. Like, let's go, go, go. Let's we can do this. Correct. This is this is for the good of the country. And I wonder what it was like to have that that mindset of I'm doing something good for this country to suddenly having different pockets of the country pop up and be like, yo, you are making us <laughs> sick, man. Like, please no, totally. pay us for our fish. <laughs> like, I just wonder what that was like from the government's perspective. <laughs> I think that'd be so I'd be so curious as well, because I think I, I totally agree with you that not everything Nothing is black and white. Yeah. And you have to remember the time period that all three, all four of these events are coming out of. Mm-hmm. It's World War II. Like you mm-hmm. just – I'm glad you put it in there. That one area was bombed eight times. Right. Like how do you rebuild after one time? It's already difficult. But yeah. rebuilding eight times and – and that was just one area of Japan. Like yeah. they were bombarded obviously as we know. So that – like the fishing industry was obviously the most affected because of this. 
But I guarantee you, like so many industries were completely destroyed yeah. after World War II and they had to rebuild somehow. So the yeah. government was in a really tight position to be like, we need to build up our economy and we have to do it fast. Right. And I think there's also an added component or factor in this where it seems like most of these solutions happened down the road, like more in like the 1960s, even like late 1960s. Mm-hmm. I also wonder if it was a thing of just tech. Like maybe there was just a block because they didn't have the R&D or actual like the t- actual technology to have the solutions that they would have they would have needed in later like the 70s or the late 60s. Yeah. So it's just like also like a matter of time. Like how do we figure out how to even begin to tackle this issue? Right. Yeah. It's that's definitely something that's that to be totally objective. That's something that can should be considered. I think that it is very easy with stories like this to kind of assume, you know what, the government was trying to kind of ignore these problems popping up so that it could keep its mission moving forward. And that could very well be the case. Truthfully, like that could be the case. And maybe that's why these things took about 10 years to resolve. Um, Mm -hmm. But it could be a matter of tech that was lacking. What seems to be consistent across the Minamata story and this story is that it seems like they had a system of your local government has to do the research first and then you bring it yeah. to the national government. And it's not until your local government has enough evidence that it warrants going to the national government. So it could have been mm-hmm. a system like that. Was that system yeah. in place in order to slow these things down? I don't know. I'm I'm not a Japanese historian. But yeah, there's so many possible <laughs> possible. <not>? Yeah, <laughs> I know I'm not. There's so many possibilities as to why these events take so long to resolve. So I completely agree. Yeah. Very, very interesting. We have completed, I was going to say trifecta, but it was not a trifecta. I don't know what you call something with four. (laughs) So we we completed the four square. We've completed the saga. The Japanese quadrilogy or whatever. We'll we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Figure it out. But yes, this is the story of the, of Yokaichi asthma slash pollution disaster. Wow. Really good. Really, really good research, Megan. This is a good one. All right. Let's do some antidotes. Let's do it. Oh, my God. Where to begin? Uh, Poison Pals, if you are not aware by now, I have moved. Not that you could tell from my voice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm over here. (laughs) She made a big, big move. Not a move, but a move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I think We We are in Malaysia. And no, this is not Megan speaking. It is Harini. (laughs) (laughs) Even though Megan is from Malaysia, her mother, her mother country is. I've got Malaysian blood. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Your girl is here. We have flip flopped. Um, So I'm here uh, with Dave, my husband. He's working here, and I am having such a good time. It's really beautiful and very excited and grateful that I get to experience this opportunity. And I'll end with this, that I launched my YouTube channel today, yes. or at least like when when we're recording this. So mm-hmm. go ahead, give that a watch if you feel inclined. It's uh, TIL Science on YouTube and everywhere else. So yeah, that's kind of fun and kind of cool. So that's my antidotes for this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We love to hear it. I am... Um... So excited. I have not consumed your content yet, but I was going to ask, have people been reaching out to you? Have you been getting feedback or is it too soon to tell? 
I think it could be too soon to tell, although someone left a comment before it even aired and was like, this looks interesting. <laughs> That's so and nice. I was, like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh. Like, oh, okay. I was like, it hasn't even come out yet. Yeah. But, That's so yeah, rad. People have been very supportive. It's It's been very, very nice. Everyone's been really, really kind and uh, yeah. supportive, so I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. So exciting. So proud of you. Yeah. I know that this is your baby, Thanks, and bro. I hope that you're proud of yourself, too. Like, it looks good. Yeah. Y'all... I know I mentioned it at the beginning of last week's episode to go and subscribe. If you haven't yet, do it. I'm just kidding. I don't like to force people, but her videos look really clean. Like, I think the editing looks so good and so palatable. So I don't think mm, you guys mm. are going to be disappointed at all. Like, it's the colors no, no. are good. The music is good. Oh, yeah. yeah. We have a great video editor. He's awesome. He did fantastic work. And he's, like, just as passionate about it. So that always amazing. makes things easier. So amazing, amazing, amazing. shout out to, to everybody who watches and listens. So thank you so much. Nice. Love it. All right. My antidote ears. <laughs> Ooh. My my antidote is going to tie into Malaysia. It's going to tie into food. I always have antidotes about food. I made one of my favorite Malay dishes. It is actually a Penang-specific hawker-style dish called cha cha kui tiao. It's a noodle dish. I was going to actually text you to be like, girl, have you tried cha kui tiao? Because that's where Harini is. Harini is in Penang. Sorry to give your location Mm -hmm. away, but she's Penang (laughs) Malay. But it's a very popular noodle. The only thing is it is a traditionally seafood dish mm. um it has mm. a lot it has prawns they put um yes. blood so cockles in it you know like cockles little shellfish yeah yeah and then if it's a chinese style they put uh, a yeah. chinese sausage in it but i put chicken instead Ooh. um so good but the whole idea of this dish char kui tiao is it's noodles in a wok with all those proteins i just mentioned chili red chili paste with shallots garlic chives Ooh. the sauce mm. is st- it's sugar <laughs> sugar it's sweet sugar. soy sauce sweet soy sauce regular soy wow. sauce and fish sauce so when the wok gets really hot the sauce actually starts to caramelize so the noodles mm-hmm. are sweet and salty and Ooh. garlicky and roasty <laughs> so if you see it i would order some but maybe you can see like hey no seafood because it'll still taste you'll still get that nice yeah, molasses type flavor as greasy love I so i made that dude, that's my antidote that dude that is <laughs> i i'm like adding seafood to your dish like did you get cockles i didn't get cockles okay okay i was like damn that is i know that would have been <laughs> yeah i know i would have been like wow yeah. this is next level not everyone's cooking yeah, yeah. with cockles in the u.s right <laughs> yeah but in malaysia they cook with cockles all the time like it is very very common to see at mm-hmm. street hawker stalls and stuff yeah for sure the mm-hmm. the actually where i'm at you can see from here like there's a whole line just along the beach of like hawker style like Love. beach hut restaurant yes. things yes yes yeah. yes so I'm gonna have to go do out a little and find stroll. those noodles. Yeah, Cha- I, I don't mind some chow. seafood. I'll try it. Yeah, I'll try it. You yeah. like shrimp? Do you like? Shrimp? I, I I'll have shrimp. I'll have okay. shrimp. Okay. I don't think you'll so, be disappointed. Hopefully. Uh, that sounds so freaking good. Anything with garlic. Oh oh. One thing I'll share for um 
food and we can mm-hmm. cut this okay. if it gets too long, which it probably is. <laughs> but um, when we were at the hotel in Lankawi, the breakfast area had a traditional Malay woman with mm-hmm. um, like the weaved baskets and the banana leaves. And she had like this whole setup and you can go to her and she'll make you a plate Ooh. of like nasi lemak, like a traditional nasi yes. lemak breakfast. Love. So good. So love, good. Love, okay. Love. And I need to ask. So there's a, um, I think it's I think it's the sambal paste, but it's not just sambal. It's like it's has like this sweetness to it, and it's garlicky and salty, and just mm-hmm. so good. It's it's like the like the red sauce. Yep, it's I, like I, chunky. Yeah, sambal. That's usually that's sambal? just sambal. Okay, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. okay. I'm getting confused because you know at the store they have like sambal like sauce, like it's just like red hot yeah. sauce. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah like, chili, it's, like that one's just chili the sauce. Same, right? Yeah, yeah. It's different. just chili sauce. So that's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that shit is crack. That shit is crack cocaine. <laughs> it's so good. All of it's good. I'll just eat yeah. This yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's some so ball, good. And some the roti. With the rice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, oh, mm-hmm. Dave is obsessed with the rice, the coconut rice, the roti. Oh my God, we are in heaven. Yeah. It's so good. Love that. You know what's funny? I know you have not listened to the Itai Itai episode in a, in a minute, but we yeah. talk about how you don't like rice in that episode, but you do strictly <laughs> mention, you're like, you know what? I love a good coconut flavored rice. Yeah. I was like, I wow, do. full circle. Bad. We're talking full about circle. it again. We are so connected with these two episodes. <laughs> and I'm in a perfect place to have coconut rice. Because yeah. there's coconut everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Nasi lemak, oh, that's it. coconut rice. We talked about that last Yes. Episode. Yes. Anyway. So good. Okay. okay. Anyways. Right. <laughs> Ending it on the same We need our own food podcast. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Uh, Here, let's, let's take it away. Okay. All right, poison pals. Mm, don't risk it for that sulfuric acid wet biscuit. Misty biscuit. Misty biscuit. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. That I don't know scary. either. That's why I didn't say it. It was in my head. I was like, do I say misty biscuit? Yeah. But I felt like wet would really like drive the discomfort yeah, yeah. home. Wet biscuit? No one likes that. Disgusting. A moist biscuit. Moist. True, 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 true. Yeah. Alright. Anyways, okay, off topic. Bye. Bye.